You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Roger Kimason, welcome to Token Theater Friends. So, Roger, you're a prophet. Do you want to tell people what we were talking about before we start recording about how we met? Because I remember a part of it, but you remember it clearly, and it did give me goosebumps. So, why don't you share this story? Well, let me say this. First of all, Jose, it is such a pleasure to be on the air with you. You know how much of a fan I am of you, both on the page and off the work that you're doing to cultivate the careers and the visibility of theater critics and thought leaders of color is so important to the future and the civic health of our craft. So first of all, I just wanna acknowledge on this podcast that your boots on the ground of an essential cultural worker in the transformation of not just the American theater, but the global theater, because if we don't have critics who are evaluating the work of people who look and feel and sound and think and dream and worship like them, then we're actually not creating a fair measuring stick by which to decide how effective someone is at pursuing their dramaturgical blueprints. So first of all, I want to start there. Now, you were asking me how we met. So in 2019, I was a very spunky young thing that was starting to form a bi-coastal theatrical life. I had a couple of showings here in New York. One of them was of my play, The White Dress, which at that time had its second showing. Um, it had, that was a revival of the piece. And then I also had a new piece, um, which was called at that time, Pleasure Men, but we changed the title later on to The Pride of Lions. And I was working with Hook and Eye Theater at the Flea. And so I was watching, I wanna say I was, I was watching uh, some show in Midtown and we ended up uh, at uh, the Signature Bar. And I was with a couple of friends who had pointed out that there you were, Jose Solis. And I came up to you and I introduced myself because I didn't know any better. And, you know, I, I didn't, <laughs> I'll just talk to people. I don't know who you are. I just talked to them. And I said to you, I'm Roger Q. Mason. And one day I'm going to be in an interview with you. And you, you were sort of taken aback by my brashness, but not so much because it's still New York and people still walked up to people in those days. And, and we still do. And uh, you said, all right, that's nice. <laughs> and I asked you how I could stay in contact with you. You gave me uh, an email address to contact you. And I invited you to see the white dress. And I believe that even in the sweltering of that summer, you came and saw that show in that hot ass room in July in, uh, in Soho uh, all those years ago. So here we are again, reunited, and I'm happy for it. You're such a great storyteller and just like listening to you because I remember like I told you I remember I remember meeting you at Signature but I don't remember the specifics of the story so I love that you remember it so well because now I do as well like it it everything makes sense and first of all thank you so much for what you said earlier that that means the world to me but also your friends knew me like I that this is where I get like a little bit like confused not confused but a little bit about like you know like 
people are not supposed to know writers and journalists and critics. So that your friends were, that's even more surreal. That adds another layer to the story that I'm like, wait, what? Your friends see me? I mean, it, it was a time in which I was trying to build relationships in New York and allyships for the work I was making. So people that whole summer were really sort of introducing me around. And at that time, everyone was out, you know, no, this whole digital relationship, touchless relationship to communication that we've had to develop over the last three, four years uh, was not in place at that time. So that was the, that was sort of the, the end of the moment where you got off the plane and if you had the boldness enough to, to introduce yourself to certain folks of influence and note, and they thought you were just crazy enough to know, you know, you could make something of yourself. You know, I, I, that was the same year, I believe, or maybe the year before, where I'd gotten myself on the uh, American Theater uh, Magazine's podcast, the content, the, the subtext. And I did that by just introducing myself brashly to the, to the host at the library at uh, the public theater. You know, I didn't have a publicist then. And I didn't have an agent then. So all I had was grit and my damn mouth and a dream that I was worth speaking to. And that was what I relied on in those days, in addition to the quality and content of the work. And, you know, I, I tend to believe that, that that's an important skill for writers to, to understand that, you know, people are not only buying into our plays, but in some cases now, you know, you can argue whether this is a good or a bad thing. They're buying into our story, our own personal story, you know, and when the story matches the mystique and allure and, 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 and of that story matches the proficiency of the work, then I think you've got something. You know, I remember an application many years ago, and it haunts me to this day, where I had asked for feedback and they had asked us to send in a, a sample of our work and then talk about what, how that work represents who we are. And I remember the feedback was that the way I described the work did not at that time match how it was manifested on the, on the page. Meaning to say that the page had somewhere to grow from where I was dreaming it would be. And I vowed on that day, I would never get that note again. Never again would I not be able to manifest incongruently, you know, what I thought I was doing. There was going to be some connection between how I thought I was writing and an effective deployment of that dramaturgical tactic. And I pride myself on the fact that I have taken the last five years to make sure that how I manifest on the page is an earnest and full-bodied representation of how I what I think I'm doing. That at least I can say for myself. Now I'm sure folks say all kinds of shit about Roger Q. Mason, but one thing you say is that I talk the talk and I walk the walk, honey. I love that so much. So I, you know, this is a great way to talk about the pink, about yes. this quality that you have in order to make connections with complete strangers. And do you want to tell us a little bit about what the pink is first? And then I'm going to bombard you with questions. Not bombard Love you. I'm going to be yeah. gentle with questions. Love <laughs> it. So the pink, the pink is what I call an intimacy ritual. I never call my pieces plays if I can help it, because I think they, number one, are outside of the traditional connotation of, of what a play is you know, which I think is a very patriarchal way of structuring narrative. So I like to define them A, more specifically than that, and B, in a more decolonized way. So I call this one an intimacy ritual. And what it is, is it's a piece about two people that have a one night stand that lasts until the morning after. And it's a sort of, simultaneously a wishing for a kind of tenderness and intimacy, but also it's a little bit uh, ripped from the headlines because some of those things may or may not have happened 
in my own lived experience as a uh, wanderer of the romantic arts. So uh, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little fact, a little fiction, and it and it's all fun. You know, the piece sort of started for me. Well, it, one of the inspirations for it was seeing Audrey McDonald and in, in, in uh, Frankie and Johnny at the Claire de Lune. I thought spending two hours and some change with two people as they navigated that strange ritual of intimacy revealed more about who they were and what they wanted and how they functioned in the world than any other means of sort of dramaturgical conceit. We are at our most vulnerable when we are alone together in the bed. And we reveal a lot, especially what we don't say. We reveal a lot about ourselves when we're in the bedroom. And so if nothing else, it's an interesting character study. But the piece is also, as I'm sort of spending more time with it, a sort of thematic extension of my play, Lavender Man. Because Lavender Man imagines some poor solipsistic sop named Taffeta who's dreaming of being in bed with somebody. And the piece ends before she gets it. We, we witness the pornographic through Taffeta watching Abe Lincoln and his legal assistant engage in, um, in a, a physical act, sexual act in the middle of the piece. But she herself does not get to participate and so that play ends with her shedding all of the feelings of ineligibility for intimacy and marching towards a new life. So now this play is not about Taffeta, but it's about that character type. And I'll talk about that type in a second. Um, it's about that type of person now having the chance in bed. And what are you going to do now that you're in the bed? And what are the hangups and what are the dreams that you're going to act on when you're in that room. Now, we talk about character type, what kind of type. I'm interested, and, and if I have to use my own body as a prototype for it, I will. But it's really not just about me acting in these plays. But I will use myself as the prototype to prove the point that there is viability in it. I think we need to reestablish who the protagonists are of our stories. I think that black and brown plus size queer folks are our new protagonists and that we deserve three-dimensional, full-bodied and complex relationships depicted on stage. And so in Lavender Men and in this piece, The Pink, I've created characters using my own self as the model, but knowing that I want these plays to have a life in the American theater that makes work and work opportunities for other queer plus size people of color like me. And um, in doing so, we normalize what it means for those folks to have complicated lives that are seen outside and out loud. They're not just the comedic reliefs or the sort of indie darlings that we sort of don't, or fetish, uh, you know, fetish victims. They are our new normal. And so that's sort of a larger mission outside of the aesthetic that I'm interested in pursuing. I kept seeing the image almost if, you know, your protagonists, Herman and Mel, as having almost like ice picks and like the entire play, they're picking at the walls that they brought into this meeting to see mm. what they'll find underneath. And yeah. it's such a lovely exercise and, you know, it's a ritual, like you said, and oh, the stories that I'm sure, I don't want to be presumptuous, but the stories that we could tell about what's happened in those, you know, during those rituals, that I found it so beautiful how in both Herman and Mel, I was able to also see parts of myself. Like it felt, mm. I this is like a, a trite word, but it felt very, very universal. But I'm also thinking, and I was also wondering for you, how is it to, you know, extract from your own experience at a time, like you pointed out, that can be very vulnerable and be very open and then bring it to the stage. It's like you're showing your, you know, your most precious secrets almost to the world. 
So how do you deal with that as a writer? Is it, it can't be easy, right? There's an abstraction that happens because at a certain point, you're writing a character that's going to want and need things and do and say things in a theatrical setting to get them. And so there's a bit of an emotional compartmentalization that I have at a certain point. I extract myself from that character and it becomes its own entity. Now, I won't lie to you, this play, it, it's a piece that it won my heart over because I found myself wanting to work on it and wanting to make it better. I, it's the piece that even though I had other things going on, I would always sneak in time to do this one because for some reason it felt important to me personally, you know, um, and I, I suspected it, it was important to me personally because it was healing for me. One, to explore those aspects of my own intimacy, but also to perhaps tell a story that somebody else had experienced in their, in their lives and know that we had a common bond through that unity. You know, um, I will say this, I have not always had the kindest relationship to intimacy. And part of that has to do with the time frame in, in which I was born. You know, I was born in the mid eighties and grew up in the gay nineties, which there was nothing gay, gay about them. It was don't ask, don't tell you know, and it was the stigma of, of HIV AIDS was very much wafting through households. I remember watching Will and Grace, we had a little uh, RCA television that was like a 13 inch. And it was in my dad's home office, which was on the other side of the house. And I would turn on Will and Grace real low, like really low. And I would watch it and I would watch these guys talk about the dates they were going on. And then Queer as Folk came out and, oh, I had to watch that real low. It was almost on silent. It was almost on silent, Jose. It was a silent picture. I don't know what the fuck those, those bastards said because I never heard a single word of their dialogue. I don't know because it was always basically on very low in that same room. But that was my view into queerness. And I, I remember my first experience that, that I recall, I'm sure I had seen queer folks before this, but this was the first time where I had seen them and been able to identify myself as one of them. It was, I was staying with my dad at the, the Chelsea Hotel, it was 2004. And it was the, the pink parade. Do you remember those? They used to have these pink parades in the village and in Chelsea. And it was spring, it was April. And we were, and I was on my way to pre-freshman weekend at Princeton, which was in the spring. That's how I know it was April of 2004. And so we were staying at the hotel and my dad went and took me to the Banana Republic down the street uh, to get a three button gray metallic iridescent blazer. Everyone had those in the early 2000s. Three button, honey, a three button. And I went to the store and I was being fitted for one for, for a very fabulous queen of color. Uh, it, she was, you know, she was, she was the one fashioning me and put in, it, she was helping me get a, 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 a uh, shirt to go with it. And, you know, and I, I was getting a concierge treatment. And, and, he, and he said to me, oh, is that your daddy? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, aren't you lucky? He must be generous, honey. And I, I think we had two different, different definitions of daddy at the time. And so I walked out the store and he said, well, honey, are you two going to the pink parade? I said, what's that? He said, don't you see it's everywhere? And I said, well, I don't think so. He said, well, you have a nice time. And so we walked outside. 
And there I am. I don't remember what street it was. It might have been Christopher. Could have been. We're outside and we're walking on the street and I'm seeing all, and it, it was everywhere, the ubiquitousness of ubiquity, whichever word it is, of, of queerness, just these, this mass gathering of men holding hands. And I remember standing there, looking at my dad, looking at him, looking at me, looking at these men. And then I was looking at these men at the touch of their hands and the electricity of that touch. And I wanted a piece of that electricity for myself. And it was an electricity that could only happen if one man touched another man's hand. And I recognized that that was something special and it was something that I wanted beyond penetrative you know, activities. It was that feeling, the alchemic feeling of touch. And if you remember from that very hot performance in July of 2019, where we first encountered each other of the white dress, there was a sequence about the electricity of touch. That trope has always wafted through my work because it was my scene of instruction as, um, as Professor Cornell West calls it. It was the moment that I learned who I was. I was able to define my queerness through an attraction to the electricity of touch. And this piece is very much an extension of that. Now it's just an hour of it, <laughs> you know, or however long it takes, an hour and a half, I don't know. It depends on the director, you know, but um, now it's not just one sequence, it's the whole damn thing. Because I think, and, and you know, I, I am a subscriber to certain uh, social applications, we'll call them, where, uh, mask identifying folks find each other for a good time. And my profile description on one such uh, application is a, a poetic depiction of the power of touch. Now, most of these guys are there for a, a one-off and, and thank you, Charlie. But every now and then I get responses from some that are like, I think you're just marvelous. And you're really onto something because touch is powerful. And I've been craving someone that, that wants that too. And of course they all end up being weirdos. But for one moment, for one moment, that individual is able to identify what they actually want, which is to make time stop through touch. Did that answer your you question? Yeah. I don't even know. Uh Oh, I trust me, trust me, you're answering like I, more than that. I'm feeling what you're saying. Like, and I remember this about you that time we met four years ago, where, which is why I'm, I'm dying to ask, when did you know that you could stop time through your storytelling? Did that happen when you were very little? How did you end up knowing that you had the, the gift of story? First of all, it's flattering that you would identify it as a gift and I appreciate that and I'm receiving that. I, you know, at, at the expense of telling the same tales I always tell, which I'm purposefully trying not to, um, you know, stories of being taken out of shows by my parents, you know, for fear of queerness being, you know, transmitted through osmosis on stage. <laughs> you know, you're in a play and so you become, a homosexual because you're in a play, you know, all of that kind of madness. I, I would say, if I were to answer this honestly, when I was performing, that's when I was liked by people. You know, and, I, and I'm actually, I'm finding myself a bit emotional now. Because I, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but, you know, when I wasn't on stage, you know, I was the overextended, overachiever, 
I was the ungrateful, you know, child. I was the faggot in the making. I was, you know, the, the sassy bitch. I was the misunderstood, you know. But when I was on that stage, everything stopped. And for those moments, I was a human of the highest order. All my flaws went away and I was beautiful. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm living for dependent on applause. That's certainly not the case. That, that perhaps was a more juvenile version of myself that needed that to survive. But what I am saying is that the transcendence of storytelling, which started out for me as poetry recitation, elocution in my grandmother's kitchen at two, I started reading um, poems from Langston Hughes, The Weary Blues. I had to come every week and stand before um, the tribunal, my grandmother and her two sisters who were um, three women from rural Texas, um, born in the 1890s and the 1900s. And I would recite these pieces and embody them, you know, these different poems of Langston Hughes. Each week I'd do a new one. And I did that really through middle school. And I guess that's where the poeticism comes in to my own writing, because where I started was reciting Langston's poetry. That was my entree into performance. And of course I did it at school and I, they had a lot of poetry competitions at school. And, and those were the times where I was applauded was when I was on stage doing that or music performance or whatever it was. And I think I hung on to that. The power that performance has to change people's perceptions of you or of their own life. For a moment, you can make time stop. You can heal people. You can bring people together. You can change their mind. They may go right back to who they were before, you know, when the show is done. But for that transcendent and ephemeral moment, you were able to do the impossible. Thank you for sharing that because now I have this visual again, you know, thinking about your post kitchen sink drama. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how the kitchen in so many ways seems that it's been a school for you, right? Like a place to, to grow, a place to learn, a place to perform, a place of pure love is what it sounds to me. Well, the kitchen was the battleground when growing up and it was also the great educator and it was also you know the the clearing house it was the social hall it was church it was um the uh, every night no matter what you were doing in my household see you've got to understand this and this kind of helps us get to waiting for a wait a post kitchen sink drama um which is the other play that i have going on in new york after the pink but You've got to understand this. I lived in a time warp. So I grew up in Koreatown, Los Angeles. My great aunt was born in 1892. My other aunt was born in 1900, although she claimed later that she was younger. My grandmother was born somewhere between 1910 and 1913, depending on what she needed on her social security card, the date would move around. You know, so that household was full of stories. And so every day without fail, I would come home from school and I would go to 705 South Serrano Avenue in LA. I can say the address now because the house has been sold much like the house in Waiting for a Wait. But I'd go to 705 South Serrano and there would be chicken jalupa or, uh, you know, red beans and sausage with, with cornbread or sometimes stuffed turkey in July, <laughs> you know, because grandma just wanted some, some turkey. And we would sit around that yellow formica table in that kitchen and exchange ideas. So here I was born in, in the mid 1980s, talking to a woman born in 1892, almost what, 90 years prior to that moment. Her sisters 
born 85 years, you know? And my grandmother and her aunts are talking about reading anthropology books by a pot-bellied stove going to Prairie View A&M College. They're talking about sharecroppers. There's one story my grandmother said that on Founders Day of her college, I believe it was uh, Houston Tillotson when she was there, she transferred later to Prairie View. They had Founders Day. And in the back of the hall, they had the black, one of the black founders of the school. And he was a sharecropper. So he, he didn't speak, speak proper. And they did the whole ceremony and they talked about the future of black education and the power of the school. And he got up, he raised his cane and he got up out of his chair and he said, now y'all don't want me to speak, but I got one thing to say, I bees rich. And then he walked out of the hall. And the significance of that is you may silence someone because they might seem as though they're not the image that you want them to, you, that you want to use to purport, to, uh, to report as the reputation of a place, but who do you depend on behind closed doors? You know, and we used to have a, a, a phrase in my house, you are who you are when nobody's looking. How you treat people in the dark is how you really are. You know, so it was about integrity. That was the other, and we'd have all kinds of stories like that in that household. So that was the world that I grew up in, you know? And in many ways, in a household of such strong opinions and dysfunction, that, oh, we gonna get personal, honey. We gonna tie all the plays together. The kitchen was, was, was where we all made peace. It was the only time when we were eating that we weren't fussing and fighting and cussing each other out. And so perhaps one might say that my own perilous relationship to food, perhaps an addiction to it, was formed in that place. Because that was the place where I could find peace. That's where nobody got upset and everybody was happy. And that, that must have had some sort of Pavlovian or, 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 or psycho-behavioral effect on me. And when you do that enough times, when you do that for 22 years of your life before you leave home, you start developing a synaptic relationship to that behavior that triggers a certain feeling. So waiting for a wake aims to capture a sort of codependent, financially abusive relationship between family members who can't let each other go, but really shouldn't stay together. And, you know, that piece I'm drawing on, I'm drawing on the classics. You know, I am, I am looking to look homeward angel, both the book and the play. I am looking to um, Long Day's Journey into Night. I am looking to Glass Menagerie, to name a few. But I'm, I'm mostly looking to the stories that I know, the stories of that house that I know, and, um, and building a work that aims, like I'm, like, like I'm advocating in these press releases, to, to rewrite the canon and say, this is the new American family. This family, which came out of slavery in the 1860s and carved a place in the middle for itself is now so eroded by a relationship to money and scarcity that it cannot stay together. So was the experiment worthwhile in the first place? What was it all worth to pursue this American dream if what it ended up in is destruction? And so one of them has to leave in order to break the cycle of dysfunction. And so that's the story. The story is a story of the, the older son in that piece leaving this house, you know, and, and, and taking a leap of faith and saying, I don't know where I'm going, but I, I gotta get out of here because this will be the end of me. This will be the grave 
that I'm waiting for. And um, I started writing that play when I was 24 years old. I was in Leon Martel's class at UCLA, the UCLA Writers Program. And one of, the, one of my classmates was the great Talia Shire. She used to drive me to the bus to go home after the class. And um, every time I sat in, in the class to do the writing exercises, I felt like vomiting and I'd leave and go to the bathroom and come back and just sit. I couldn't write the play because at 24, 25 years old, I was so deeply enmeshed in that story of, of codependence that I couldn't you know, find a way out of it. And I certainly couldn't write about it at that time. So 12 years later, you know, and a pandemic, I'm now in a position where I'm talking about it, you know, in ways that I wasn't able to before. One, because I think time is a great educator, but two, because I think working on other projects allowed me to have that kind of um, objectivity you know, that's necessary in order to tell it as a story. It's not a journal entry. It's not a therapy session. It's a play that, that's trying to engage an audience. And, oh, I called it a play. See how the colonizers gotten in my tongue? It is a drama that's trying to, uh, that's trying to impart some story of, of, of the human condition to audiences. And in so doing, by telling itself specifically and honestly, tell some truth about our own moment, collectively. That's what I can you, say about that. Would you think about your plays in any way almost as family recipes that you're preserving and you know that you hope people will get to uh, cook someday? Because I, I want to, this is a very corny transition, but I want to ask about how you put together the ingredients, you know, basically, how do you get Dominic Colon, for instance, to do the reading of the pink with you? How do you, how do you allow external ingredients to come into play with with the place that are so dear to you? You know, I have developed a really keen ear, and it absorbs things from everywhere. It absorbs conversations in parks. It absorbs things I see, absorbs things that I hear, and it stores them. It stores them for long periods of time, maybe decades. And then after some time, they come out and they come back and they find their way in the place. I can't tell you when or where or why they happen when they do, but they just come back. You know, I think, uh, I was on another interview the other day and I called myself a jazz playwright. And I think that sort of improvisational relationship to art making is true. You know, I grew up listening to jazz. That was what we, we didn't listen to Boys to Men or, or LL Cool J in that house. You weren't gonna listen to that music. Cause of course, just like the theater would, uh, I, I, I lived in a very risk averse household. So just like the theater would turn you homosexual, listening to the hip hop would turn you into a juvenile delinquent. You know, that's the house I lived in. So I was going to uh, the Cat and Fiddle and the, uh, and the local the musicians union, listening to, to aging beboppers. <laughs> that, that was the house I grew up in. <laughs> So my, literally my whole life was a time war, you know, but I think that that music, of course, my taste in that music evolved into, into its own thing. I, I stopped listening to, you know, what I call that honky tonk shit that my father likes to listen to, you know, the straight ahead stuff. It, basically, I think what he really likes is soul jazz because he loved him some Eddie Cano, loves him some Eddie Cano. And Paul, and Paul, oh, what's his name? Anyway, uh, there's plenty of them, but name the soldier, uh, Les McCann, that's another one. And, and Eddie Harris, you know, that, that whole era, that's sort of where he, and, and then of course the, uh, the, the Latin jazz moment, you know, Cal Jader and all that. You, you see what kind of ear he has. So of course, when I start listening to Wayne Shorter, 
you know, and I'm over here listening to Pharaoh Saunders' last album. He's like, oh, you on that way out shit. Fuck, I ain't going to. So he goes to his jazz clubs and I go to mine. It was, it's funny, I was in, uh, I was in New Orleans researching a project uh, last month and, um, and I was, I would just sit in the lobby at the Pontchartrain Hotel because those cats was jamming. I mean, it was crazy. Everybody was in there, you know? And, and I just love it. There's a certain expansiveness, you know, to the music. There's a certain, you know, you have a note and then what do you do with it? You have a structure and what do you do with it? Okay, a four act structure, what do you do with it? And I do think of these, I, I'll meditate on plays for a very long time now, it, more, more than I used to. I used to be so, so eager to impress, you know, even you sitting there at the signature. So, so eager to, 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 um, to have somebody come up and see that I was worth something, that I, I feel like I had to write impulsively and quickly, you know, and, and I don't do that anymore. I'll sit with a play for a long time until I really know what the question is that I'm asking and, and, and how I'm going to ask it and what the shape of the, of the question is going to be. You know, and I'm really digging what I call symphonic structure right now, four act structure. Um, you see it in um, you see it in uh, Waiting for a Wake, which it has moods. That's sort of a, a uh, that's sort of a uh, a tribute to James Moody, M Moody's mood for love. You know, we've got four moods in the piece, but also if you look at Pharaoh Saunders's last piece, it's got different mood. I think he's got eight movements in there. You know, and you look at the structure of some of that astral jazz music, and there's typically about three or four movements. And of course, symphonies are structured in four movements and the pace of those movements. So each movement in Waiting for Awake is a different pace. And pace is defined by not only what mechanism we use, whether, you know, it's, some of them are very dialogue heavy, some of them are more sort of um, behaviorism. One of them is a silent scene you know, different, different paces that we'll use to, to create different tempos and then earn the, the epilogue of the piece. So I spend a lot of time at the symphony, truth be told, you know, if I'm given a day off, where am I? I'm at the symphony. I'm at the symphony. And the reason is very simple. I, I think that music teaches us how to dream beyond language. You know, because plays are judged on the page, the way that we can most gratifyingly behavior, behave ourselves to be celebrated is through writing witty dialogue, because that's perhaps the easiest thing somebody can pick up and say, oh, that's a good play. You know, people admittedly don't recognize the power of a stage direction. They'll get up at a reading and say, I didn't realize that was there. And, you know, I, I've gone through my whole thing and I've, I've said this publicly about reading for potentiality. I had an article in American Theater Magazine with Danilo Gambini about it, where we talked about reading for potentiality. You know, how do you read the stage direction? How do you read something and look at not just what's there, but what could be there? You know, that means that you're teaching people about the, the stuff of the imagination, you know, and that's not the most easily taught thing and it's not the most commonly acquired activity in our country. You know, look at how we judge people to get into schools, all these damn standardized tests and all. It's, it's, a, it's a world of compliance and regurgitation. So now you're encouraging free thought. And I know this sounds, you know, very sort of 1940s, you know, progressive of me, but, but God damn, I mean, we're still struggling with the exact same social ills that we were. You know, and now we're banning books, we're bang, banning fucking wigs at bars and saying, you know, drag queens can't uh, perform before kids. These kids need to know how to put their makeup on, bitch. Why are you going to deny these children how, the, 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 you know, the education of the beat? What the fuck is wrong with you? How you think these girls going get to get, get their education? You know, and if you think that the children aren't queer, then you're very strongly mistaken. And what's wrong with it anyway, if they are, you know? And what good is censorship going to actually do? All we're going to do is go underground again. 
you know, and become that much more blatant and that much more innovative and that much more innuendo driven and frankly, that much more exciting. You know, you haven't stopped what we're doing. You've just made us more vehement in our pursuing of it. Unstoppable you know? for sure. So, you know, how does it feel then that with everything that you're touching on and everything that you're talking about that your work, um, you know, all your works can be benchmarks, can be places where people learn, where queer kids learn, you know, about history, about music, about touch, about feeling, about love. Is that something that excites you as you uh, work on reshaping the canon? In the, in the pandemic, I became a mother. I started mentorship work. I worked with um, the New Visions Fellowship. I worked with the Shea Foundation. I'm now working with the Marsha P. Johnson Institute to mentor young queer writers. And nothing has given me more personal satisfaction and fulfillment than that activity. You know, no matter what people say about my work and me, my own personal work, I'm happy for it. I'll take the Tony. I'll take two. I know you've got listeners on here who vote. I'll take an OB too. You can just ship it to me. I'll send you my mailing address. DM me in the Instagram. But what I'm, but what's equally fulfilling to me is watching people come up after you, feeling emboldened by the mentorship that you're able to provide. You know, I've always been someone that has been perhaps without mentors. Why that is, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I talk too much. Maybe I have such strong opinions. You know, maybe I'm difficult to tame or to mold in someone else's image. Sometimes that's what mentors look for in mentees. I'm not saying that's true of all mentors, but it is certainly true of some. And it's, it's, it's true of folks sometimes that I have encountered. I want to do for people what didn't always happen for me. I want to find people where they are and help them become the greatest and most satisfied version of that that they ever could be and more. And then I want to encourage them to take what they have learned from that, in, from that selfhood and share the bounty with the next generation. Because we're only as good as the people we're able to inspire along the way. We're in the service of the human spirit. Our work is the work of the spiritual realm. That's what playwriting is. It's spirit work. And if we don't do that work knowing our divine reason for the season, then I believe we're wasting the opportunity. The ancients understood that theater was mystical. And I think part of what I'm offering is a return to the sublime. It's a return to those rituals. You know, the, the, the story of Ast and Asar, which Westerners would know as Isis and Osiris is, a, is an intimacy ritual. She brings him back to life because she finds a golden phallus and she has sex with his dead body until she brings it back to life. The touch is what brings him back to life. And ultimately, for those that understand hieroglyphics, that's what I'm talking about in the pink. That's the intimacy ritual. It's going back to that first one, you know? And when you think about waiting for a wake as a post kitchen sink drama, I'm calling for a world after fourth wall realism that's patriarchal in nature. I'm saying the patriarchy and the pursuit of it is what eroded this family. So let's, let's fuck the kitchen. Let's find some other place. The kitchen ain't never helped me, honey. The kitchen has, the kitchen has, you know, put my blood pressure and my blood sugar up. The kitchen, I don't need the kitchen, honey. I need honesty. I need truth. I need simple human kindness. You know, that's what I need. But that's the, that's, I think the work as it stands now is 
building a road to a kind of freedom, personal and civic, that I'm imagining through the ritual of performance. As these plays get produced and touch people and embolden them to say and do the things that they're censored from doing and thinking, they in ways, you know, local and national and international can enact the change that we desperately need in this world. And it starts at home. It starts in the bedroom. How you treat the partner in the bedroom is how you approach the world. How you treat your brother, your sister, your sibling, your child is how you treat other people in the world. You are who you are when nobody's looking. And if people out there wanted to get in touch with you about possible mentorship, can they do that as well? And yes. Slide in your DMs. You can slide in the DMs. The best way to contact me is on Instagram at rogerq.mason. Q for Quincy, not, not anything else. So R-O-G-E-R-Q dot Mason. That's my Instagram. You can slide into those DMs and contact me and let me know what you want, what you need. If you're looking for a mentor, if you're looking for a recipient of an award, I am here and open for business. <laughs> Thank you for that, Roger. And as we say goodbye then, now I'm very curious, how, how did, did this live up to what you thought it was going to be four years ago? It's better because four years ago, I would have been so caught up in appearances. See, I don't give a fuck anymore. I'm a free bitch. <laughs> and also, you know, um, I think the pandemic has made us get to a more honest place a lot more quickly in conversations with people just because we had to, but also because we could. So I feel like there's a lot more honesty and a lot more willful vulnerability that I'm able to share with people now than I did before. And also, you know, therapy is real. So I, listen, she works, she works. Well, thank you so much, Roger. Here, if I had a drink, here's to free bitches. Yes. May they live long and prosper. Yes. Cheers to that. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.